You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Hi, I'm Lisa Keith, editor in chief of Meeting Place and Alt Meat. Welcome to this month's Meeting Pod episode dedicated to the meat alternatives market. Bob Hibbert is senior counsel in the Washington, D.C. law firm Wiley and a rock star in the arena of meat and alt-meat regulation and laws. He represents clients before both USDA and FDA. Among other types of cases, Bob has ushered numerous new technologies and processes through the federal approval process. Bob spent some time talking with me about the state of alt-meat labeling, a possible timeline for federal approval, to sell cultivated meat for human consumption, and how state laws like California's Prop 12 could have an effect on the meat substitute markets across the country. One of the things in the vast horizon of regulatory and legal issues related to meat substitutes in general, we have different regulatory and legal issues related to whatever the technology is that's being employed. So tell me what the major distinctions are and the major challenges are, for example, the cellular or cultivated meat side versus what is already in the market with the plant-based meat substitutes. With the cultivated meat products, you have this, you go back a couple of years and you have this joint jurisdiction agreement between the FDA and FSIS which was preceded by some controversy where it looked to some people as if FDA were trying to sort of grab hold of the entire issue. And there was some pushback from various interests that said, no, 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 no. If we're talking about meat and poultry, we're talking about FSIS jurisdiction. But I think what kind of helped to sway things in that direction back then from the perspective of these emerging cell-based companies were two factors. Number one, if they're underlying assertion is this is meat or chicken, this is beef or chicken or whatnot, it is the same thing, then by definition, you would want to be regulated by the people who regulate beef and chicken. The other thing, which we can talk about a little more, is the additional Easter egg you get, if you will, within the FSI system. And there are some challenges it poses as well, is you have federal preemption of labeling. So once FSIS rules on labeling conventions for these products, it's really difficult, if not impossible, for state and local authorities to intrude and uh, try and impose other requirements, which is a lot different than for products in the plant-based space. Well, it seems then that particularly with cultivated meat, we're sort of in a not here and not there position. On the one hand, when a decision gets made regulatory wise on cultivated meat in terms of how it's going to be called, labeled, treated, et cetera, that's going to be it. We're not going to have this prolonged and ongoing state-by-state legality, trouble over the legalities that plant-based is facing in, in terms of their labeling. On the one hand, there's good news. And on the other hand, there's bad news. We obviously live in a litigious society and there's not, you know, it doesn't mean that someone won't take a crack at it. But there is an awful lot on the books all the way up to the Supreme Court and back that says federal preemption for FSIS regulated labeling of FSIS regulated products is black and white. And there's not a whole lot the states can do about it. 
Now, in terms of when that regulatory guidance, the regulations might become available, to somebody in my position, what's going on between the FDA and USDA is sort of a black box. There's not information forthcoming, which is understandable, but you're much closer to it. So do you have any sense as to where we are in that process? Well, to be honest, I think the box is pretty black from my perspective as well. I've been engaged in various conversations with regulators and people in the companies and so on and have some sense of it. But if you break this down, again, you go back to that framework we talked about where FDA has original responsibility at the sort of cell cultivation stage. And there's lots of back and forth and sharing of dossiers, I think, with companies. And there's really no available guidance on exactly what that FDA process is. So it's very much sort of ad hoc at the moment. And it's a little complicated in terms of, I don't think these products fit neatly into sort of the FDA paradigm of traditional foods versus grass notification versus something else. There's sort of a bit of this and a bit of that. And then you have this notion that at some point it transits into the production of meat and poultry and FSIS takes over. Exactly what that point is, is a bit of a mystery to me where that magic moment happens. I I think of like the fingers touching on the Sistine Chapel, FDA and, and FSIS pass it along. But the scientists may be able to define that moment better than I can. So it might make scientific sense. It might make political and legal sense, but it probably doesn't make a whole lot of practical sense because obviously you have a continuous operation here. It's not as if you're going to be cultivating cells in an FDA facility and then trucking them across town to the USDA facility. It's, I have to assume that it's going to be a continuous process. So when USDA assumes jurisdiction, presumably it's traditional USDA jurisdiction, which means a visit to the plant every day, the requirement of a HACCP plan and other relevant controls. But it seems to me that that HACCP plan can't ignore the preliminary cell cultivation stages. So you've got this overlap between the FSI has to plan and presumably the preventive controls that are being engaged in on the FDA side. Those are manageable issues, I think, as a practical matter, but you really need, I think you're going to need a fair amount of guidance to weave your way through that. And it doesn't exist at the moment. So I have spoken with some cultivated meat executives lately, as I'm sure you have as well, who feel that this process might yield something marketable within 12 to 24 months. And you've explained that this whole regulatory process between the two agencies is rather a black box for everybody. Does that time frame sound reasonable to you? Does that sound a little wishful thinking? Or do we really have no basis of knowledge on that? Well, I think there's two independent variables there. There's what the companies are ready to do. If I'm company X, and I'm ready to scale up and go to market, and I think I've got a good quality product at an affordable price, then I've certainly got a right to push the system and say, tell me what I need to do, and I'm going to do it. You have that will, and I'd heard in the past, that remains to be seen, but you have that versus the traditional regulatory process, even with the two-year time frame, tends to be much slower. The agencies have advanced notices and requests for comments that have been out for a good while on the labeling issue. And in theory, those comments should be evaluated. And then a proposal should be issued with 
economic analyses and all the other stuff that goes into rulemaking. And then you have another comment period, then you have a final rule, et cetera, et cetera. That generally, and particularly is where there's going to be some controversy and divergent opinion, it's going to take a long time. So I think there's tension between how quickly the companies want to move and how quickly the agencies are willing to move. But I think the variable there is, are we going to wind up with a lot of the rulemaking process? Or are we going to do what both agencies have tended to evolve the direction of in recent years, which is, okay, the regulatory process is too slow, we'll issue guidance materials. So if I were to sort of irresponsibly speculate, I would think that sooner rather than later, the agencies should be and perhaps might be in a position to start issuing not final rules, but guidances that would do the same thing. The other thing I think, specific on the labeling side, based on I've got a fair amount of experience with FSI's labeling from various perspectives, but it's the nature of the beast that you or I or someone else tomorrow in theory, could make a request for label approval to FSIS, even if we're, I'm not ready to go into production to force there and say, okay, here's my product in the standard format. Here's my product. Here's my ingredients. Here's my processing procedures. Here's what I want to call it. Here are claims I want to make. Either authorize it or tell me what's false or misleading about this potential label. So I think that the label approval process is an additional sort of forcing mechanism on the system that at some point somebody might choose to use. That's the first time I've heard that particular path being mentioned. So is this the kind of tactic that perhaps companies have used in the past to try to force a decision from the regulators that they feel are taking their sweet time? Well, I think in the broad sense, yeah. I mean, company X has got a new product and it's not sure, again, a traditional product, a new hot dog or whatever. It's not uncommon. And this goes way back to my some of my early experience when I worked there. But for them to be not necessarily fully committed to production, but to sort of say, okay, let's go to FSIS and see what they will accept here. There's nothing in the system to stop you from doing. Interesting. I'll see how that plays out. So on the plant-based meat substitute side of things, we've got a completely different legal landscape. For one thing, you have products that are on the market and have been on the market for decades. So it's a well-known part of this sector, if you will. But then the regulations, nobody seems to have wanted to, the companies would really like to have a federal law that regulates all of this. And the federal agencies have been not interested, it seems, in wading into that. Why is that an area that the feds don't want to make a blanket ruling on? You're into some of the fundamental differences between the FSIS and the FDA systems. Obviously, the plant-based products are under FDA's purview at the federal level. You just have a fundamentally different system where you don't have continuous inspection. You don't have prior label approval. You have what is, in the broad sense, a more passive system. And some of these controversies are ancient. I mean, there's the traditional dairy industry has been complaining for decades about whether it's imitation cheese or almond milk or whatnot about the access of to traditional nomenclature 
of non-traditional products. And that sort of gets you down a rabbit hole of you have a lot of FDA food standards that are antiquated. Everyone says something ought to be done about it, but it's easier said than done. It's potentially tedious. It's potentially controversial. FDA is always in a position to say, we've got higher priorities, we've got bigger fish to fry, so on and so on. And it just, historically, it never gets done. So what that does is it kicks things down to the state and local level where you're going to continue to have, on the plant-based side, you're going to presumably continue to have a traditional dairy state like Wisconsin is going to be conservative in that regard, a traditional livestock state like Kansas might have a problem with a plant-based terminology, so on and so on. My best guess is at the federal level, the FDA is going to continue to duck unless there's really some forcing event through legislation or something else. It's going to kick these controversies down to the state and local level. Interestingly, although this doesn't have to do with alternative proteins, the Supreme Court is going to hear the Prop 12 controversy in which a state law in California has an effect on how producers and processors do their jobs in other states if they want to sell those products inside the state of California. Is that the kind of legislation that might have an echo effect on plant-based meat substitutes and cultivated meat that where that state law could be interpreted as being something that would affect the rest of the country from a constitutional point of view? It's conceivable. The organizing principle is what California is doing is an inappropriate burden on interstate commerce. And should the Supreme Court go in that direction, you have precedent that arguably probably would be cited in other contexts to say, I mean, that's the general issue. In other words, the tension is between the inherent authority of a given state to, among other things, protect and inform their consumers versus the need to have interstate commerce. And of course, what companies, particularly companies of any scale, want is one national system. And you've seen that historically. You saw that in recent years with the bioengineered disclosure rule where when some states started to get feisty, the industry basically sued for peace at the federal level and said, okay, we will trade some disclosure requirement for what amounts to federal preemption. You saw that decades ago with the initial iteration of mandatory nutrition labeling, where the same thing happened. States were getting frisky about challenging certain claims. And again, Congress stepped in, passed the initial Nutrition Labeling Education Act and preempted Again, that could happen. I mean, if there's enough mischief created at a local level, it's not unreasonable to think that there might be growing pressure for some federal relief that would clarify a higher level of preemption for these products. But that's legislation is easier said than done, but that's, that's a possibility. Some versions of bills addressing those issues have been floated every once in a while. And like most bills in Congress, they end up going absolutely nowhere. So it will be interesting going forward if pressure builds in this arena. It seems to me Congress has a few other things that are higher on the priority list right now. So I'm not anticipating it anytime soon. A third leg of meat alternatives is on the fermented side, where you're taking 
mycelium and other products and fermenting them in vat sort of has one leg in the cultivated grown area and the other leg in the plant-based area. And so far, it seems to have escaped an awful lot of too much regulatory scrutiny or legal issues and such. Are there issues related to that technology that you're aware of that could come up that we ought to be aware of? Fermentation has been an established food manufacturing process for centuries, millennia probably. My colleague, who's a big expert in this, Ann Begley, who's the head of our practice group now, is among other things, the general counsel to the, it's called the Enzyme Technical Association. So she's knee deep in some of these fermentation issues. But yeah, it is a cousin to these same issues. I've seen some indication of some hybrid situations where you have fermentation with cultured cells that are developing dairy products. So the streams seem to be coming together in that space where fermentation plays a role. Is it more likely in fermentation that the issue of GMOs and GMO labeling might come to the fore? There's an awful lot of, whether it's warranted or not, controversy kicked up over the fact that, for example, Impossible Foods Meat Substitute uses a GMO-produced ingredient and Beyond has done some marketing around the fact that it does not have any GMO ingredients. Is that something that might have more or less applicability in one part of this alternative meat market versus another? I mean, it could. I mean, a couple of distinctions. First of all, I think the threshold issue when you're talking about uh, bioengineering ingredients in this process is whether there's any basis to be classifying a given use as a processing aid versus an ingredient. So if you can qualify as a process, you're effectively out from under the ingredient disclosure and the related bioengineered disclosure requirement. But the point is, if there's a bioengineered ingredient in the food that's present, that's available to the consumer, you've got to now engage in the disclosure. I think that raises the question, particularly given all the flexibility that's been afforded in terms of the method of disclosure, just as how big a deal that's going to be in the marketplace. That's an unknown. Obviously, one can posit that there are some enthusiasts for some of these plant-based products that would step back when they see the, that it's got those ingredients in there, but other people may not care. I think that's going to have to shake out the market. And it's been shaking out very slowly for some time. Yeah, I think that's right. What other legal or regulatory issues are you keeping an eye on on behalf of clients or just on behalf of yourself in this particular space? Well, I think there's international interest in this. We've had some back and forth with companies about importing products, both the nuts and bolts of importing products under FDA and USDA requirements, the exemptions that may or may not exist for test products and taste panels and those kinds of things. And I think that gets to some of the overarching questions about broader international interest in this, the fact that as has been well publicized, Singapore has taken the lead with with an approval that the Europeans seem to be moving forward in the context of their normal food regulations and various levels of support. Israel's involved heavily in this. So I think the question is, how does the international marketplace coalesce around this and, and to what extent Can you sand off any of the differences that might exist between international and domestic standards and how that gets resolved? 
that's a broader question that's going to play out over the next several years as well. That is interesting because in my observation, the alternative meats industry is much more international and internationally linked than the conventional meat production, which tends right. to be very country domestically based. So what you're saying is that if it gets certain approvals in other countries, the EU and that sort of thing, that could in fact have more of a ripple effect, if not directly, at least in terms of the zeitgeist, if you will, or the, the momentum in terms of what happens stateside. Sure. I mean, I, arguably, you're out from under some issues that, that would obtain on the traditional meat and poultry side, things like animal health and phytosanitary issues and mm-hmm. the nature of the inspection system and all, you know, that arguably shouldn't be quite as heavy a lift in this space as it would be in the traditional space. That doesn't mean there won't be complications, but it would just seem on the surface that it would be easier to move through some of those issues than would be the case in the traditional system. I think every day brings new surprises and new developments in this arena. We'll check back with you probably in a couple of months and see if we are in a different place at all. Sure. It'd be my pleasure. And it's been good to talk to you with you today. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate your time. Bye-bye. Our thanks to Bob Hibbert for taking the time to discuss these issues. Next up for Bob is a plan to speak at next month's Future Food Tech Conference on Alternative Proteins in Brooklyn, New York. There, he will take a regulatory deep dive into the issues of global approval of novel food products. You can read more about regulations and laws that govern the meat alternatives markets at our website at alt-meat.net. You can also go there to subscribe to our twice-weekly newsletter and bi-monthly print magazine, dedicated to the business of alternative meats. Thanks for spending time with Meeting Pod today. Remember to tune in on Mondays and get the inside track on the people and processes that power the protein supply. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Meeting Place and Altmate magazines on social media, or visit our websites at meetingplace.com and alt-meet.net.